We're going to be in the book of John. John chapter 5 verse 15 is where we're going to pick up our teaching today. We are in part 23 of our Being Jesus series and I entitled today's message, What God Wants. And if you have a handout sheet uh, that was given to you at the front door, there's a fill in the blank on that. Let me just give that to you real quick. Out of all the amazing things that Jesus came to do, one of the most critical was this. Jesus came to reveal the Father. Jesus came to reveal the Father. That means the idea is, what does God want? What does God think? How does God act? What is God's opinions? Jesus came to tell us and show us and demonstrate what God is like. And that is something that we so desperately need. If you want to know what God is like, you got to look at, at Jesus. The Bible says that Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature, that he is the image of the invisible God, that the in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That means that he is the identity of the Father fleshed out in this world. Our Christianity is wrapped up in who Jesus is. So today we're going to fall more in love with him. We're going to understand him more. And we're going to go through one of the more thick theological passages. So we're kind of in Theology 201 today. I'll try to break it down and keep it as, as basic as possible. But this is pretty heavy stuff. Uh, but I can't imagine trying to fall in love with someone you don't know. I can't imagine trying to grow in the knowledge of someone without reading his word. I mean, if we're going to love God, if we're going to love Jesus Christ, we need to know everything we can to know about him. So that's what we're going to do. Let's jump right into it. John chapter 5, verse 15. I'll just read the first two verses and, and then we'll tear it apart. We're picking up on the story where the man was healed by the pool of Bethesda. You remember that? Jesus stepped over all the different sick people, selected one man, healed him, and after 38 years of paralysis, he could walk. Jesus said, take up your bed and follow me. Uh, he said, take up your bed and go home. And the man picked it up. And as he's going home, he gets heat from the religious leaders. What are you doing carrying something on the Sabbath? That's against the rules. And they started getting really in his face. And he said, hey, hold up. The guy that healed me, this Jesus guy, that's the guy you want to talk to. He's the one that told me to carry something on the Sabbath. So they went after Jesus. That's where our story begins. The man who was healed went away from Jesus and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews, the religious leaders, were persecuting Jesus consistently. Because he was doing these things consistently on the Sabbath. Alright, so real quick, we've talked a ton about the Sabbath. I only want to recap this. When God gave Moses ten commandments, the fourth one said this. Remember the Sabbath? Keep it holy. What it means is there needs to be a date day with God every week. I need you to chill out. I need you not to be a workaholic. I need you to rest and rejuvenate. And I want us to have some special time together. So that was always the intent. 
But because the Jews wanted so badly to not offend God, they thought it would be wise to add a bunch of rules so no one would ever offend God. And they came up with 39 different categories of work and they made it burdensome. They made it a drag. It was not only not a restful day, it was a miserable day. It was a day with persecution where everyone would get on each other's case. You can't do that. You can't do that. You can't do that. And Jesus was ticked off going, that is not the intention of my father. So I'm going to step into your world, keep breaking your rules, tick you off so we can re-rack and get back to what my father intended. And he does it here again. It says, now Jesus answered them, verse 17, my father is working until now and I'm working. That is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he's even calling his own father, God, his own father, making himself equal with God. All right. A couple things right off the bat. We see that Jesus is causing trouble about how he's interacting with God. He does not say our father collectively like the Jewish people. He says the phrase my father. Now, that was already agitating enough, but, but Jesus also used two other titles about himself that the Jews could not receive. One of those is he called himself and his favorite title for himself was son of man. Now to us, it doesn't seem all that impressive. All right. You say son of man. What does that really mean to an ancient Jew? It meant everything because son of man. Now it technically just means a dude, a guy, a human being. That's all it means. Son of man means a, a child or a, a regular person. So you go, why is that offensive? Because when a religious rabbi says it, it's not just a person. He's referring to an Old Testament prophecy that's found in the book of Daniel chapter 7. If you remember Daniel in the lion's den, that guy is, he had a vision one day and it was terrifying where there was all these beasts rising up out of the oceans and rising up out of the land. And one looked like a leopard. One looked like a bear with ribs in its mouth. One looked like a ferocious beast with iron teeth. So he's freaking out about all these things going on. And then when those are done, he sees the ancient of days upon his throne. Now that is the classical view of God. That is the classical view of the father. He is there on his throne and all of creation is before him. And then his vision says, and I saw one like the son of man stand before him. Now you go, okay, so you saw a regular guy stand before him. He said, yeah, yeah, that's true. But the ancient of days gave him the ability to rule forever. So after all these terrible kingdoms, a son of man comes, ushers in a brand new kind of kingdom, a kingdom of peace and grace, and the whole world shifted, and this son of man will be the ruler forever. Well, who in the world would God hand that over to? Jesus said, that's me. So understand, when he uses the phrase son of man, it is very controversial, right? Now, as if that wasn't enough... He also dropped this other bomb. So anyway, my father and I'm his son, and so I'm the son of God. I'm sorry, you're what? What do you mean the son of God? God doesn't have any kids. What do you mean? What are you trying to say? All right, 
This is where we have to get into a slightly different mindset. They missed it too. So let's get into the theological mindset about what son of God means. When we think of son, we think smaller version of, right? I mean, so it's kind of like, well, there's God and then he has his little buddy son of God, right? It's kind of like one day he'll reach the bars. You know, it's that kind of thing. You know, there's a big God who says, now son, follow me and I can create. Now you try it. Oh, you did it wrong. Now let's try it again. Okay. This is how we think of son of God. Now what's ironic is that I'm taller than both my parents. So it shouldn't be a size thing, but still in our minds, we think God and mini God. Well, that is not correct. Actually, here's what they're referring to. C.S. Lewis said it best. He said, cats beget cats. Dogs beget dogs. God begets God. What is he referring to? He's saying that in the phrase, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Son is of the same sort. A dog doesn't suddenly go, a kitten. Well, that was weird. Never saw that coming. I just, man, I don't know how that thing came out. That was weird. Kind produces kind. When I had my two daughters with my wife, they were not less human just because they were smaller. Humans produce humans. Well, here's the ironic thing. God produces God. So if you ever use the phrase son of God or begetting of God or anything like that, God can only have God and God by definition is infinite and always. This is where it starts getting a little trippy in our minds. You have to think of the Son of God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit as equal. We have to understand that you cannot have partial God. You can't have kind of God. You can't have many God. He's either God or he's not God at all, because that is the definition of God. So when we think of son of God, let's think equality and you go, well, wait, 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 but the, why does he call him the son? That's a role. Role is different than equality. Here's why it's super important practically for, I'd say, I don't know, at least 10,000 years. Women have been degraded as if because they are different, that they are less than. That is not correct. That is not biblical. It is not right. Because it said in the beginning, God created male and female in his image. He poured out his attributes into women. He poured his attributes into men. And he said that they were his sons and daughters. There is equality. Now, where we get screwed up is we think equality means sameness. It does not. Equality means equality. Role defines whether you're different or the same. So do men and women have the same role? No, actually they don't. In the same way as the father and the son don't have the same role. Are they equal? Absolutely. Do you ever go, man, the Holy Spirit got ripped off, right? I mean, it's like the father got to create and the son got to create and and then the Holy Spirit is like, really? I have to do the indwelling thing? That is a drag. I do not want to live in those people. That's weird. Of course not. No, you look at God all the way across the board and God is God. I mean, the Holy Spirit's just as powerful and amazing, but his role and function is different. The father begins creation. He creates through the son and the Holy Spirit's the power that keeps it moving. And so you go, they're all part of it. They just have a different role. So whenever we think of what the son is doing, he is carrying out a role and function 
and we got to lock that in our minds. All right. So here's a couple other pieces we need to lock in. The Bible also says that we are sons and daughters of God. What does it mean? It actually says the phrase to those who believe in his name and receive him, he will give the right to become sons and daughters of God. So if we say God only begets God, are we saying that somehow we are going to become deity? No, there's a difference between adoption and live birth. Here's what I mean. When you are adopted, there is the same love, the same rights, the same of all sort, but there's not the same genetics. So we're talking about genetics here is that when Jesus is the son of God, he is genetically meaning of the same essence as the father. No matter how loved we are, no matter how beautiful we are, no matter how glorified we are, we are only glorified human beings. We are still created beings. We will never be God. A misunderstanding of that concept has what led some new religions to begin giving the idea that we will become gods. Now, here's the sad thing. God's saying, can't you accept the compliment and understand that I will make you beautiful and you will become with me and you will be bestowed with power and excitement without trying to take my job? Isn't there a way you can just say thank you and not ruin it? That'd be great. We are indeed sons and daughters of God, but in a different way. Here's the other phrase. Somebody would come back and they would go, well, Lance, hold on a second. I get what you're saying, but you know what? The Bible also says that we are born again. Behold, all things become new. It's not just an adoption. We actually become born again in the spirit and that we are partakers of the divine nature. Well, that sounds pretty impressive, right? You're absolutely correct. Yes, we are born again. Yes, we are empowered. Yes, we are connected with God. Yes, it is a union. And yes, we now have a supernatural life ignited within us. Yes, we are not just merely human. We are the beautified, glorified version of human. But we're still human. Let's move forward. It says this. So Jesus said to them, in other words, to explain why he considered himself equal with God. Truly, truly, I say to you. Now, we all know I don't like that phrase. So we're going to go ahead and change that one. Remember, the new phrase is, listen up, this is deep. All right? So we're going to use that. He's going to say it like four times. Okay? So I'm not even going to say the truly part. We'll just move on. It says, listen up, this is deep. The son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. That's called imitation. For the father loves the son by action and shows him all that he himself is doing in constant revelation and greater works than these will he show him like raising from the dead so that you may marvel. Okay. The son can do nothing on his own accord. What do you mean? He's God. His role was to take on humanity. This is where it gets a little bit trippy. Jesus never ceased to be God, but when he came here, he took all the cool stuff about God and set it aside. He then added humanity to his nature. That is why he can get stuff. Have you ever heard the phrase, and the father gave him the name that is above every name, and you're like, how did he get something if he's God? If God has everything, how do you give someone that has everything? How do you give him the name? If he's God, he already had the name that is above every name. 
How can Jesus receive anything if he's fully God? Because he got it in his humanity. As he put on humanity, suddenly he could now receive stuff. He could now get honor and glory. He could now grow in stature. He could now be empowered with the Holy Spirit. Why? Because in his humanity, he did not have that yet. So the father was bestowing things down upon him because he was fulfilling that role. The other thing that's interesting about that phrase, uh, that passage we just studied is it says the son does whatever the father's doing. What does that mean? Is it like Jesus walked in a trance-like state and all he could see was a father doing stuff and it was like, the father's pouring the coffee. The son is pouring the coffee, right? I just do what I see the father doing. The father has two creamers. I do two creamers. It's not... That's not really the point. It's not this trance-like state. Here's what I think it means. I think it's talking about role modeling, copying, listening to, following the agenda of. I think that it goes like this. The son would be walking around, tracking on what his father is into. So all of a sudden he would say, all right, clearly in Nazareth, their unbelief is so strong, we're not doing any miracles there. The father already made that obvious. We're not doing miracles there. All right, father, where are you working? Oh, you're working in Capernaum. Great, let's go there. He sets up shop there and does a ton of miracles. Then as he's ministering, he'll look around and it says, and he saw someone who had the faith to be healed. What does that mean? It means the father was highlighting going, I already worked on this person, got them all prepped, ready to go. Okay, can you finish the job? The son goes, absolutely. Tag team, you're healed, let's go. In the same way, the father would reveal stuff to the son and he would begin to share about that part of the kingdom of God. So I don't think it was a trance thing as much as it was a, well, yeah, I know my dad and I know what dad's into. And so I'm going to go copy what my dad does. I'm going to run around and do what he would do normally. Okay. Isn't that what we're supposed to do? I mean, isn't that kind of the point? He set an example. So we would do that. How do we copy God? Well, if we're supposed to be just like Jesus, which is what Christian means, it means a mimic of Jesus, how are you supposed to do that, right? The old WWJD thing, right? <laughs> what would Jesus do, right? What does it mean? Here's how it starts. Now, there's a lot of layers to this, but here's how it starts. You have to read what he's already said. Why? Because the more you know this, you already have a groove on what he's like and what he does like and doesn't like. The more you read the word of God, the more it sharpens your ability to hear his voice and to see his work. So, for example, the more I study Jesus, the more I implement it into my life and I start acting like Jesus acts. Let me give you an example. Um, I'm out in the lobby, and in case you did not know, because it always appears that every time I finish preaching, I disappear behind the magic curtain. Have you guys noticed this? There's a little magic curtain over here, and I hide back there. Okay, here's what I'm doing. Whenever I finish preaching, I go behind the magic curtain, and I chill out and get a drink of water and sit in the little scary room right here. Now, I chill out for about two to five minutes, and then I come back out, and I try to go engage with everybody that's still here. So sometimes I'm in the community hall, sometimes I'm in the lobby, whatever. So I go out and try to find you guys. Now, when I'm out there and you're talking to me, it's always very intense because some people are like, hey, we just had a baby. And I'm like, yeah. And everyone's like, well, I have a demon. I'm like, oh. And then, and, and then, 
And then I'm over here and somebody's like, I have back pain. I need prayer for it. And then the other time they're like, so about the campaign, how can I give stock? And I'm like, uh, so my job's weird, right? So as I'm wandering around having all these conversations, let's say a little child comes up and goes, hi, pastor Lance, what do you think I'm going to do? Okay. So my immediate reaction is what would Jesus do in that moment? And how did he act in scripture? Well, what I will do is I will do my best to politely put you on hold and I will turn to face the child. Why? Because that's what Jesus does. So I'm trying to mimic everything he does. And the more I've read about him, the more I learn, I realize he shuts down adults and pays attention to kids. All right, right on. Let's do that. You know what I mean? So then I'll get down on their level and I'll talk to them a little bit, you know, and find out a little bit about them, compliment them on their clothes or their little animal that they're holding or whatever it is. And then I'll re-engage with the adults. I'm doing that because I'm trying to do what he would do in all ways. Make sense? All right. So I think that's what he was doing with the father. I think that the son was going, listen, I know the father's heart inside and out. And in this moment, this is exactly what he would do. All right. Pretty practical. Verse 21. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. Ooh, that's a tough one. Why? Because all Jews know only God has the power of life and death. So what did Jesus just do? Claim to be God. He said, and I can make people alive or dead on my word. Now, do we know that he can do that? Can Jesus raise the dead? Yeah. So in this time in his ministry, he hasn't done a lot of that. So they're all like, what, what are you talking about? Well, we look at it backwards and we're like, man, he stopped that funeral procession and raised that kid back to life. He raised that little girl back to life. He raised Lazarus back to life. And when he on the cross, do you remember that on the cross, the curtain is torn in two. When Jesus gives up his spirit, there's an earthquake. It opens up the graves and people get out of the tombs and go back into Jerusalem. So for us, it's not shocking to go, of course he raises the dead. But do you see, he said, I'm telling you, I'm God. And even if you kill me on the third day, I'll get right back up. That's what I do. I have the power of death and life in me. That's incredible. For the father judges no one in his role, but has given all judgment to the son. That all may honor and respect the son, just as they honor and respect the father. Whoever does not honor the son doesn't honor the father who sent him. Uh, this is the funny thing about judgment. It's the same thing with like glory. Whenever you are engaging with any member of the Trinity, they always push off on the other one. It's almost irritating. You literally, you go, you go, father, you're awesome. And he goes, have you seen the son? You're like, yes, I have. Uh, son, you're amazing. He's like, well, it's better that I go that the Holy Spirit would show up. Uh, Holy Spirit, you're awesome. Have you seen the father? Yes, I have. And I go, and it's funny because we chase each other around all the time. And you're like, I don't know who I'm praying to. Am I praying for this? I keep praying that the father died for my sins. The father didn't die for my sins. I don't even know who I'm praying to anymore. Okay. God can sort it out. All right. You know, could you please get your mail to so-and-so, right? You've reached the Holy Spirit's voicemail box, right? You know, they, they forward email. It's all right. They can handle it. But what's funny is about judgment, we get a little bit thrown off. Because before the manger, before Jesus came here, he judged all things. Then he took on the role to redeem mankind. And for that portion, the father took over the judgment piece because the son only came to save. 
The minute he raises back from the dead, he goes, Father, I'll take that back. Thank you very much. Gets on his white horse, king of kings, lord of lords on his thigh. Boom, he's right back into judgment again. So that's why we're always tracking and going, wait, who's doing what? Who's doing? They're all so completely in sync. It doesn't matter. That's why you say God is the judge. Because it moves. It says this in verse 24. Listen up. This is deep. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. That's called the gospel. Listen to me very clearly, because you may have been invited to church to hear this message right here. And it's simply this. If you are willing to own who you are, which is a broken, sinful individual, Jesus Christ came for you, loves you, cares about you and wants so desperately to rescue you, wants to give you forgiveness, wants to give you grace, wants to wipe out your sin. And what he requires of you is total surrender where you go, I can't do this anymore. If you do that and you fall into his arms, he says, I can take care of the rest. He grabs you and says, death will never touch you. I get you may step out of this life, but you're only going from glory into a greater quality of life into more glory. So you never have to fear because I've taken all the fear out of death. You're going to be fine. I have you in my arms. That's what he just said. That's how powerful the son is. Verse 25. Listen up. This is deep. An hour is coming quickly and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live for as the father has life in himself as creator. So he has granted the son in his humanity also to have life in himself and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he's a son of man. Do you realize how many walking dead are in this world right now? Walking dead is this. It's everyone in the world that doesn't have Jesus. And here's what it looks like. Hey, I appreciate the fact that you can walk around, you're a moral person, you're a sweet person, but your, your goodness only matters for this life. I appreciate the fact that you have plans and dreams, but your dreams end at death. I understand that you are loving and kind to your family, and I understand that, that you have ideas and imaginations, but there's no spiritual life in you. That's called the walking dead. Can Jesus make them come alive? Yes, that's what he does so beautifully. He brings us alive and in a moment, click, the light comes on and suddenly the spirit of God wells up in our lives. He not only fixes the walking dead, but one day he will call all the dead to get up. That's when he moves on. It says this. Do not marvel at what you've heard so far. There's more for an hour is coming. Verse 28, when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and they will come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment, everyone lives forever. It all depends on where. And so he will call all out of their tombs. And it says he who does good to what's good. Is this really teaching that you got to be a good person to get to heaven? No, it doesn't. What's the good that you would do? Surrender. The good is believing on Jesus Christ and acknowledging that he is the Messiah and saying, my only hope is in you. That's the only good thing you can do. There is no good other thing that you can do that's going to get you to heaven. You can trust in Jesus or not. That's it. 
But those who have rejected the Son of God, they too will be raised, but they will be perpetually in judgment. That's a whole different ballgame. Jesus said, let me, let me bring this back down for a moment here. I can do nothing on my own in this role. I'm completely blindfolded. I'm following the Father. That's it. As I hear, I judge. That means my judgment is right because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, listen here, Jewish people. Let's go legally on this, he says. He said, in ancient Jewish law, I can't validate myself. I can't go, I'm the Messiah and you're supposed to believe me. That doesn't work. In law, you can't authorize yourself as a witness. You've got to have at least two or three other witnesses outside of yourself. Jesus said, I got four. He said, let me drop those on you. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Anyone can say they're Messiah, right? But there is another who bears witness about me. And I know the testimony that he bears about me is true. That's God. But let me go through my witnesses on the stand. Number one, you sent a delegation to John the Baptist. You wanted to go check him out. Oh, he's the righteous one. Oh, he's the repentance guy. You liked him. Well, do you remember that he has borne witness to the truth that I'm the Messiah? John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's my first witness I'll throw up there. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man. I say these things so that you may be saved. Yes, he, John the Baptist, was a burning, kindled oil lamp that burned brightly. Yes, the Father was moving through him. You were willing to rejoice with him for a little bit, but you didn't take him too seriously, did you? You liked him, he seemed like a good guy, but ultimately you didn't change. The testimony that I have is even greater than John. Let me go to number two. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me and testify that the Father has sent me. Listen, I could not do what I'm doing if I was not the Messiah. Yeah, John said I'm the Messiah. John said I'm the Son of God. But look at what I'm doing. I literally can call people out of their tombs. I can do everything. It's the healing the side of the blind. It's unstopping the ears of the deaf. I can make the lame to leap like a deer. I can do whatever the Father wants me to do. If I was not God, do you really think that I would receive the praise of God? Do you really think that I would demand worship like God? Are you not tracking the very works that I'm doing? Prove I am who I say I am. That's witness number two. Number three, verse 37. And the Father who has sent me has borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Do you all remember how many times the Father said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased? Remember that? He did it at his baptism. He did it at the Mount of Transfiguration. He did it at the triumphal entry. He did it at the cross. But here's what's fascinating. It says no one ever heard his voice. You go, wait, wait, wait. On Mount Sinai, when Moses was getting Ten Commandments, God spoke and the people so freaked out, they said, we don't want God to talk to us anymore. Moses, you do it. Remember that? What did they really hear? What they heard was scary stuff. Notice that even in the triumphal entry, when the father spoke to the son, it says the people that didn't believe, all they heard was thundering. They didn't even hear the voice of God. They heard something scary, but they didn't know what it was. The Bible says that his sheep know his voice. If we're not his sheep, 
We don't know his voice and we miss him every time. He says this, you search the scriptures, right? You're all fanatical about the scriptures, Pharisees, because you think that in them you have eternal life. You're looking for the big code to heaven. Well, you know what? It is the scriptures that bear witness about me. That would be my fourth witness that I'm bringing up your Bible, right? Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I don't, I don't get it. All the old Testament is about me. And if it's about me, how come you're not seeing this? How come you're not reading it right? I mean, it's like you're blocked. By the way, is it possible that we would make the Bible an idol and miss Jesus? Yeah, it is. Just remember, the Pharisees were way more knowledgeable about the Bible than the disciples. But the disciples were saved. The Pharisees weren't. He said, listen, I don't receive glory from people. I don't need you to validate that I'm the Messiah or the Son of God. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you don't even receive me. Now, if another one comes in his own name and he's bogus, clearly you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Listen, don't think that while I'm in this role, I've come to accuse you to the Father. I'm here to save you. Now, there is one who is going to accuse you. Moses, on whom you're so wrapped up. Oh, Moses will save me. Moses will save me. Because I'm a Jew, I should automatically have access to heaven because Moses will save me. The law will save me. He said, whoa, 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 hold up. I'm the Savior. The law is condemning you. I'm saving you from the law. If you kick me out and hang with the law, you're in trouble. Don't do that. Honestly, if you believe Moses, you'd believe me because he wrote about me. But if you don't believe his writings, how are you going to believe my words? Okay, do we all see what Jesus was doing? This is why it's so critical to know about role, equality, son of God, son of man, all these things. They make the Bible come alive and they're rich and you're like, oh, I get it. But here's the thing I want to be very clear about. They killed Jesus because he claimed to be God. Don't ever come to me and say, he's a good teacher, or he was just a prophet, or that's not why they killed him. They didn't kill him for being a nice guy. They didn't kill him for trying to be a prophet. They didn't kill him for any of those things. They killed him because he claimed to be God. Well, I just wish he would have said that he was God. He did. (laughs) And in Jewish world view, he said it all the time. That's why he was crucified. Because in their world, you don't claim to be God unless you're God. Because if you do, that's blasphemy. And blasphemy is worthy of death. Jesus was not merely a healer. Jesus was not merely a miracle worker. Jesus was not merely a good teacher. Jesus is God. And that's why we praise him. That's why we worship him. When you walk into Bridgeway and you go, man, you guys are really Christ-centric. Yeah, we are. Very. Why? Because it's called Christianity. Right? So we learn all we can. We love all we can. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for sending your one and only son that we may never die. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the sins, dying on the cross for our sins that we might be free. Thank you for doing what we couldn't do for ourselves. Thank you, Jesus, for setting us 
free. Holy Spirit, thank you for empowering us, indwelling us, walking alongside us, guiding us, and showing us every moment. For you are the one engaging with the church right here, right now. So God, we don't have it all figured out. We don't know how you work. We don't understand all the ins and outs of it, but we do know this. We love you. We do know we respect you. We do know that you're incredible. And so we want to give you all glory and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.